politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. The horror in Israel and the war in Gaza. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Larry, and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made In and Bethlehem College. More about both of those in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please... Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, uh, horrific events in Israel over the weekend. We are still seeing new videos, hearing new revelations. There was a reporter this morning at a Israeli village about a quarter of a mile from the, the border with Gaza who described soldiers there finding uh, beheaded babies in these houses that they were still clearing just unspeakable stuff, medieval stuff, if that's not insulting to um, the medieval world, and it probably is. The, these guys, they kind of mix the ethic of the, the sickest mass shooter you can imagine in the United States with the, the cruelest and most unwatchable scene in a Quentin Tarantino movie, just utterly shocking um, cruelty and heartlessness and rape and murder and hostage taking and just everything you could imagine. Yeah, I don't sense any question in there. And I don't know if there needs to be any, you know, what do we make of this? Uh, like the moment I, w- I came down stairs Saturday morning, my wife says, yeah, there's a really bad attack in ha- by Hamas in Israel. And my first thought was, ah, you know, Hamas is always launching rockets. You know? And then you actually read the coverage, you see the video. And I would urge people, if you can stand it, you should see that video. Because as much as we don't want to look, it happened. It's real. It's the truth. Um, our, our, and I almost kind of wonder, and I said this kind of in the context of Russia against Ukraine, whether some people count on our reluctance to see that. And obviously, in many cases, the Western media's reluctance to show those images. Um, they kind of use that against us. They kind of, you know, that's a way of them getting away with it. That what they do is so horrible that we can't bear to look at it. And therefore we do not react the way we ought to when we see such a barbarism. Um, we, I, I, I've, since, since the weekend, I've been walking around with this, this tension, this, 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 you know, we were talking about it before we started taping. Honest to God, this anger Right, because you, know, you thought you thought it's 2023. You thought the world was moving to a better place. You thought pogroms were a thing of the past, and here you are. You you Saturday morning, bunch of innocent kids celebrating at some music concert, 
and all of a sudden the wall gets knocked down and like ants coming out of an anthill or, or hornets coming out of a nest. There are this, these homicidal maniacs out to kill everyone they can. And there's no, this isn't an allegation. This isn't a rumor. This isn't a story. They recorded it and they put it up on social media for the world to see. Right? This isn't disputed. This isn't even the, ah, uh, you know, we don't know how these people die. It's up there. You can watch it. You can see it. This is as evil as it gets. This is as straight up there. And, you know, my comments can go in a whole bunch of different directions here. Got some disagreements with Ann Applebaum over at the Atlantic, but she observed something that kind of echoed what I'd said when we're, you know, the idea that we're dealing with, you want to call it the axis of the A word uh, that a Ukrainian member of parliament described to me. You could use the, you know, axis of demons, devils, coalition of devils, whatever you want to call it, in which, you know, you know, Hamas did this because it was supported by Iran. Iran is where in the situation they are, not just because of the six billion we just decided to unfroze, but because of the extreme economic, you know, uh, benefits and ties of trade with China. They're selling drones with Russia. All of our enemies, every hostile state is figuring out new ways to work together. They're trading weapons. They're trading information. They're creating defense packs. They're all working closer together these days. Now, you don't, you know, you may not like the you know, term axis of A-words, but there, we need some term to describe this because it's going on. And it's, everybody fights like ISIS now. There is no standard. Everybody's like, not just, we're going to do the worst possible thing. We're going to target civilians. We're going to do it, and we're going to upload the murder of a grandmother so that on the family so that they see it. That's who they are. And, you know, I made a reference to the beast men of Hamas. They're, they're not people. They're not human beings. They've, they've voluntarily taken themselves out of the category of human beings. And if somebody wants to say, oh, no, Jim, you're dehumanizing Hamas when you say that. I think Hamas dehumanized themselves when they committed these atrocities. Yeah, absolutely. So, Noah, this is not a focus of the debate at at the moment, but it's going to come in in Israel. I mean, there there are already you know waves of anger about how the government could let this happen. You have Bibi Netanyahu, you know, the prime minister. He's supposed to be Mister Security, and here this horrible intelligence failure happens. This uh, really embarrassing for the security services days just to clear terrorists out of their their own towns and a sophisticated attack, which which goes to the support they got from Iran. Now there's a dispute. The Wall Street Journal said Iran actually greenlit this operation. The Washington Post had a big story today that said um, Iran was involved in the training and planning, but didn't go so far to say, you know, they, they pushed the button to actually make it happen. But regardless, it was quite sophisticated. These um, motorized paragliders, you know, you don't just uh, uh, take off in, in one of those uh, tomorrow. It requires a lot of training. This had multi-layers. My understanding is that they disabled and attacked a lot of the Israeli bases, uh, jammed communications. So that's why they were able to, to run rampant uh, for so long. But, you know, e even the survivors, you hear these horrifying stories of, you know, being on a second floor of their bedroom and hearing the Hamas guys out there and, and hiding and trying not to make a sound and having to do that, you know, for, for 12 or 18 hours before help showed up. And there will be a reckoning. Uh, about the intelligence failures that led to this, the worst slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust, uh, and the worst attack on Israel in 50 years, almost to the day, 50 years, the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And as you say, 
the scale of this event using these motorized planning or motorized uh, paragliders and fast boats from the sea and bulldozers, which they're not supposed to have, and very sophisticated technology, which they're not supposed to have, all betrays the degree to which the idea that Gaza is so thoroughly blockaded, in, because the regime is an aggressive regime, there's a digression, but there's uh, some sort of cognitive dissonance on the part of people who want to make this Israel's fault, where they insist upon the idea that the occupation has made the regime and the Hamas regime violent. No, the Hamas regime is violent. Its charter calls for the destruction of Israel and the murder of Jews wherever they can be found. Its whole existence is dedicated to that proposition. It is violent, therefore it is blockaded, not the other way around. But as you say, the degree of planning here and preparation betrays as fanciful the notion that the leadership in Hamas, the Politburo in Gaza City, wasn't aware of this, didn't have some level of operational control. We don't know the extent to which Iran was involved in this. But Iran funds 19 jihadist, at least 19 jihadist organizations. This is one of them. They do maintain operational control and authority from Tehran and Beirut, where a lot of this was planned. And as Jim said, it's it's all connected. The Hamas, Hezbollah, terrorist operators who operate under uh, the direction of the Islamic Republic in Tehran um, also uh, are supporting... Moscow's war in Ukraine. Hamas has taken high-level meetings with the Kremlin. We don't know what was discussed, but we do know they all share the same objectives in the region, which is to tie down the United States and to tie down Israel and to advance Iran's interests and to preserve the Syrian regime. And Iran supports Moscow's war with its weapons, missiles, and drones. Um, we know that the DPRK in North Korea and China are supporting Russia's war. We know that China has a vested interest in restoring the centrality of the Palestinian question to the region, because that advances its efforts to supplant the United States as a diplomatic force in the in the Middle East. The uh, Beijing or, uh, orchestrated, engineered a rapprochement in March between. Iran, and Saudi Arabia. It seeks to do that, and the fastest way to do that is to make the Palestinian question, Palestinian issues, once again central to Sunni regimes and how they view their region, how they navigate their region, if they can, because their populations are still very much sensitive to the Palestinian plight. When Hezbollah and Hamas and Iran get together and chant death to Israel after they kill Israeli Jews, they're not confused. They're not saying, oh, you know, we don't really know, you know, we're... These guys are just kind of peripherally uh, aligned. They they don't see it that way. The way we see Hamas working at the behest of Tehran whenever it does stuff like this, they see it like the United States. They see Israel as acting out the, the will of the United States. And it is a direct conflict by proxy, but a direct conflict and a direct effort to undermine, overthrow, hammer away at, destroy the American-led geopolitical order. It is all one conflict. And it's time for us to start treating it like it is the existential threat that it is. So, no, what what does in this context what does blockade mean? Does, that, that, does this mean they're they're carefully examining everything's coming in because they're worried about rockets being in, uh, imported and very, various other dangerous material? What 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 is the actual? Blockade. Yeah, I can't say I'm an expert in this, so I will just give you broad strokes. But from what I understand, sure. it Hamas, Hamas in the Gaza Strip that it controls is a is a fiction. It exists at the uh, on as a result of foreign aid. 
uh, a lot of Iranian aid, a lot of regional aid from bad actors, but also European aid and Israeli aid. And it's administered very closely by is Israelis. Um, there are Syria various checkpoints that uh, sometimes Gazans can get visas to work in Israel and they come in and out of these checkpoints and that's where the aid comes through. And there's also um, efforts to interdict traffic via the sea. And there's naval assets off the coast of Gaza that try to prevent, obviously, the incursions that we saw by sea. Uh, so it's by and large a security operation, but there are there is traffic, humanitarian traffic that goes in and out through these checkpoints that Israel administers. Yeah, and it's also worth noting, right, that e Egypt has a version of the same thing. Egypt has a checkpoint, that's right, which is much more heavily policed, frankly, than, than the Israeli uh, checkpoints. It, you have more access to Israel, I would, I think, than you, as, as a Gazan, as an average Gazan citizen, than you have access to Egypt. Yeah, so Charlie, the conundrum here is Israel can occupy Gaza as it did before, which it doesn't really want to do. Who wants to occupy Gaza? And if you occupy Gaza, it supposedly justifies all the, these horrific acts uh, against you. Then you leave Gaza. Uh, you don't get any credit for leaving Gaza. And when you leave Gaza, it's taken over by this terrorist force who wages a um, murderous uh, uh, factional war with Fatah and sort of takes the whole thing over. And then you have a big problem, and you're still blamed um, by, by certain sectors. And we're going to get in, in the next segment into more of the, the reaction of the West and Harvard and, and all the rest about this. But it, that doesn't work either. I think perhaps the most insightful and important observation that anyone has made in the realm of practical politics, in the history of practical politics, is that everything involves trade-offs. This was most famously popularized by Thomas Sowell, but it obviously predates him. And it's true here as well. The fact of the matter is, the devastating fact of the matter, is that this worked. This was a success, in the way 9-11 was a success. On 9-11, they got us. And... On Saturday, Hamas executed the biggest hit on Israel in 50 years. And whatever happens next will yield all manner of little tributaries that flow and create future problems and future successes. And I think it is important when considering this to recognize that what I don't think it is important or correct to do is to acknowledge that and then suggest that Israel turn the other cheek. I don't think that that is an acceptable response. I don't think it's an acceptable moral response. I don't think it's an acceptable practical response. And as you say, I don't even think it's an acceptable realpolitik response because when Israel did the opposite, which is to pull back, they got no credit anyway. The same people still said occupiers, still waved their flags and held their epithets. I think we need to see some serious retaliation because the moment calls for it. What we should not do is assume that there is a way of solving this. 
And that's the word that's always used in discussions of this. Solution. There probably isn't one. And if there is, it will be a long, long, long time coming. There will be trade-offs. And I (laughs) think that Israel has to take those risks. What I do not think is the case is that Israel will, by responding to this, create the next set of problems. As Noah says, this is not a hatred that comes out of Israel's action. It predates that. Israel is in a very difficult situation. And with with an open and clear mind, it has to engage now. So, Jim Garrity, extra question to you. Feel free to be more expansive than usual, because that's probably called for here. It's not a simple question, but let's go. What do you think in terms of the military slash political outcome here? What's the best case for Israel and what's the worst case? um, I like how you keep them simple, Rich. (laughs) Um, I I mean, the ideal is that Hamas... It gets wiped off the face of the earth. It's eradicated. That there's nothing. That there's enough uh, killing of the membership of Hamas, and you know whatever survivors remain, recognize that what they did was so counterproductive uh, that it is eradicated. And you look at the history of terrorist groups. They can. They they do die off. They do wipe out. I think the the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka come to mind. Uh, FARC is is a shadow of its former self. Mm-hmm. You can even point to Al-Qaeda, ISIS, right? I mean, you know, ISIS still has affiliates, mm-hmm. but we don't spend a lot of time. The Islamic State is no more. So terrorist groups can be defeated. Um, what you need to do is make sure that they don't have some safe space, no pun intended, to retreat to and restock and rearm and lick their wounds and build up their resources until the next attack. And right now, unfortunately, the Gaza Strip is a great big terrorist base. And I should point out, are there Palestinian human beings out there who have no want no part of what Hamas is doing? Yeah. Yeah, they're they're you know, I, I also have been thinking about Palestinian children and how their version of Sesame Street tells them about the glory of killing the Jews and how they're basically taught to be suicide bombers from the moment they can read and listen and, and understand words. Those kids never had a chance. And so, you know, I remember I mentioned this yesterday, you know, back in the mid-80s, Sting sang the song, Do Russians Love Their Children Too? If you're teaching your kid to be a suicide bomber, you don't love them. You see them as an expendable tool to be used against the enemy. You don't see them as human beings. I, I, as a dad, yeah. I, I just I can't get I can't get my head around that. that you, yeah, you want a, healthy, kids- a healthy society would be just repulsed by this this attack. Right? And, and maybe, maybe that sentiment's there and, you know, is, is suppressed, mm-hmm. yeah. but um, we're not seeing it. We're not seeing any yeah. evidence of it. Well, and you could point out, you know, why do the Palestinians not have their own Gandhi or their own Martin Luther King? Well, if they ever rose up, Hamas would kill them uh, and Hezbollah would kill them. The, the You know, um, these groups that thrive on being, that they're, they, they, one, they want power for themselves and two, they very much want the Palestinians in the world to believe that the only way for the Palestinians to ever get a decent homeland and a decent future for themselves is through Hamas running around killing as many Jews as possible. Because if there was another way, and oh, by the way, you can look to you know all kinds of countries all around the world, in which they've gone from being oppressed and poor 
and uh, getting the short end of the stick in every conceivable way. And they have risen up. Generally, it involves education. I mean, just think about how many Palestinian children who were taught the best thing you can do with your life is blow yourself up in a pizzeria. Imagine how many doctors they've lost. Imagine how many good scientists. Imagine how many scholars, businessmen, artists. There's a lot of wasted human potential in the Palestinian culture right now because they teach their kids, go kill yourself. That's the best thing you can do. And so like, so the best case scenario for Israel for that to get eradicated, for enough Palestinians after this barrage from Israel to say, the hell with this. This is not what, like, you did see some portions of the Muslim world and the aftermath, like you haven't seen people saying, ah, you know, it's a shame ISIS, you know, uh, isn't around. You can find that. But it's, uh, bin Ladenism is not, was not a big factor in the Arab spring. There's frustration in the Arab world and they, uh, Islamist terrorism, it's not gone. I think you say it's out of style. It's not, you know, the, the hot new idea that's uh, spreading like wildfire. I'm hoping that what Hamas did here will be self-defeating. It will nullify support for the Palestinian cause. It will discredit the Palestinian cause and force the Palestinians to say, this is not getting us where we want to go. We got to go in a different direction. That said, it's very hard to go. To, to, it's not looking good at this point. And it's very easy to believe that, you know, if Israel ends up flattening the Gaza Strip, which, you know, sounds like it's starting, it's underway as we're speaking here, um, that whoever's left is just going to say, screw it, we're throwing in with Hamas, and we just get more of this in the future. Noah? So it's best case, worst case for the mm -hmm. coming <clears throat> operation. So the best case is that this operation is limited to a single front, that Hezbollah stays quiet in the north, we don't see that kind of expansion of the conflict, that they operate a very competent decapitation strategy, neutralize Hamas's capacity to project power across the borders Gaza, dissolve the government by force, reoccupy the um, strip, and minimize casualties. And the world is shocked by the scale and nature of this brutality into subordinating their otherwise reliable instinct to blame Israel for the death of Jews. And we saw, saw a statement that I thought was pretty encouraging from a group of Western powers, the United States, France, Britain, Germany, others, uh, in unequivocal, unequivocal support of Israel, uh, which is a statement you would not have seen 20 years ago. So it's encouraging. The worst case scenario is somewhat easier to envision. This becomes a slog. The Israeli reserves, which have not seen combat in the degree and fashion to which they're about to engage, um, become bogged down. It's a house-by-house, block-by-block, brutal war for control of the Strip. Um, we, don't, we don't see the extent to which the Israeli army is underpowered and undermanned until they're deep in it. And there's a conflagration. The second front opens up. There are American prisoners. The United States could get involved militarily, um, which would dramatically complicate the region and and likely exacerbate conflicts abroad, both in Ukraine and perhaps in the South China Sea. And then we get to the place where we can really see the contours of a post-American world emerge. Jim's point about ISIS, I think, was very important. ISIS is brutality, and Ann Applebaum's point about ISIS. Uh, ISIS's brutality, it turns out, was not an, an aberration. It was a leading indicator. The terrorist group was executing a war against civilization, and it was a civilizational struggle, and therefore it's not 
unsurprising to see the enemies of civilization everywhere reject the conventions to which the civilized adhere, like not using rape as a weapon of war, not executing civilians summarily en masse, not killing children, not ethnically cleansing territories. This is now the new normal. The post-American world will be a Hobbesian place, and it's one that we must resist with all, all the power that we have available to us. And the consequences so no, are emerging. So now let me stick with you just for a second. So what is your guess about, obviously, th- this was an operation, as we discussed earlier, extensively planned. So there had to be some thought, what's going to come afterwards, right? And they had to know that there, there would be strong blows coming from Israel. Did they figure, well, we know this is coming, so we've just hidden everything and, and we've uh, gotten out of the way, so we're, we're not going to get hit even if they blow up a bunch of apartment blocks? Or are they thinking the international reaction will set in the way it always does and say Israel needs to exercise restraint? Or do they think, you know, we got these hostages, you know, they're making the threat now, every bombing of an uh, apartment block that kills civilians, we're going to kill a hostage. I think even the threat has been we're going to do it publicly or, or air it. Do they think that would stay Israel's hand? What What did you or, or are they just not not cared because just striking this blow against Israel is a a victory in and of itself. Whatever comes next. I mean, I kind of find it hard to believe that there was a table around which everybody planned to decapitate babies. I really just find that hard to believe. I, I think a lot of this was just the animal spirits and the passions of the moment. I mean, these are barbaric people. And who are capable of this, and everyone knows they're capable of it. In fact, that's their value proposition. But I don't think that the scale of the brutality that we saw here was part of a plan, per se. So I can't imagine that there was a lot of uh, post-game analysis here as to where this would go. I saw Jennifer Griffin, reporter of CBS News, saying senior intelligence officials say Iran's objective, grand strategic objective, is to bog the United States down in a conflict by proxy. Mm-hmm. They don't want a conflict directly with the United States. We're, we succumb to this weird notion in this country that we're this power in decline and we can't project power overseas at a sustained level. For, you know, nonsense. Iran would not benefit from a direct conflict with the United States. It wants to avoid that. It's an existential crisis for them. So I don't think that there was a le- uh, that the level that you describe of, of foresight and planning um, – was apparent here because it would be a miscalculation if events drew the United States directly into a conflict in this region. And in, in the near term, at least, for the executors of this attack, it would it would end badly for them. Charlie, best case, worst case? Well, I think the best case is that the Israelis hit Hamas hard enough to, for a period of time, render it unable to stage another attack like this. So said earlier you cannot do it permanently but you can do it for a good period of time and in conjunction with that manages to rally as much of the western world as possible to its cause such that those other nations that have an interest in hamas's success sit down the worst case scenario is as noah says that israel gets bogged down in this endeavor that the horror that people feel fades and that it doesn't get enough of its objectives complete in time, and therefore it leaves Hamas wounded and Iran a little bit chastened, but not in a way uh, that is lasting. And and I, I think that is where the West comes into this. I don't think there's going to be a loss of resolve 
in Israel, although that doesn't always translate into military success, of course. I do worry that there'll be a loss of resolve in Europe uh, and possibly even in the United States. So if I were Israel, that part would worry me a great deal and constitute a good portion of the worst case scenario. So I basically agree with everything that's been said. The best case is that you fulfill your objective of wiping out Hamas. But even this best case, going in on the ground in Gaza, is it's going to be ugly, even in the best case. And then further best case, and now we're, we're getting into uh, very optimistic territory, is you, you have some political solution in mind that you can actually execute for Gaza. You can hand it off to someone who will govern it somewhat decently. But who is that, right? Who wants to govern govern Gaza? So this gets into the the worst cases, which is one, as as Charlie says, you know, the the international pressure uh, stays your hand before you can achieve your objective of destroying Hamas, and or it's just too militarily uh, difficult, or you succeed and then. There's no one to, to give it to, and whomever you um, give it to uh, it ends up being a version of, of Hamas several years from now. So you, you've dealt um, you know, a severe blow in retaliation, but you end up back where you, you were. And then the further worst case, as Noah was saying, is you, you get a war in the north as well. That The, the odds of that are not uh, small. Uh, you know, it's not a certainty. But there, there is some serious chance there'll be a war with Hezbollah as well. Then you have a, a two-front uh, fight, and Hezbollah's capabilities are, are much, much, much more robust than those of Hamas. And then you get you know, further on, you get in the, uh, a potential for, for some sort of um, escalation all the way up in, involving a shooting war uh, with Iran. But this, this, even in the best case, this is not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy with that. Let's pause and hear from our first sponsor this episode, Made in Cookware. Made in has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they found that people consistently say two things about their cookware. They can feel the difference when using Made in products. They can taste a difference in their cooking. Born from a 100-year family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply, Made in works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant Professional quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Discover your best dinners ahead with artisan-made restaurant quality cookware. Top professional chefs use Made In, including Tom Colicchio, Brooke Williamson, Grant Actis, and Stephanie Izzard, among many, many more. Made In's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double-layer professional-grade non-stick coating. Made In stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. Maiden's carbon steel cookware can handle up to 1,200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame. Plus, Maiden has an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and more. We found this all to be emphatically true in the Lowry kitchen. Our Maiden pans are great to handle. They cook evenly, and very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. So Maiden Cookware gets our highest recommendation here, and especially my wife's recommendation. Editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Maiden. For full details, visit maidencookware.com slash editors. That's maidencookware.com slash editors. This is great stuff, and I assure you, if you get made in products, you will not, you will not regret it. 
So, Noah, not the most important uh, event over the last several days, but you had, what, a couple dozen Harvard student groups issuing a a statement that was just uh, morally bankrupt in all respects, blaming Israel basically for the attack. Not a word of of condemnation. You know, we we support... um, ending Israel's existence, but this isn't the way to do it. You know, none of that, just attacking Israel and its supposed, quote-unquote, colonial retaliation it was about to undertake. We saw a a pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas protest in New York City. We saw a protest at the Sydney Opera House where, if the transcription was correct, people were chanting gas the Jews. We've had various statements from members of the squad that are contemptible as well. What do you make of it? I mean, it's no surprise to me that we see this rhetoric coming out of young, well-heeled, very educated Americans, because this is the sort of thing that you can only convince yourself of if you've subordinated all rationality to a series of intellectual exercises. It's... The sort of thing where you, you have to reduce this conflict to a level of abstraction that turns people and statistics and their murderers into robots that are just carried along in the tides of history in order to see no agency in the people who shot seniors at bus stops and decapitate children and burn people alive in their homes and use rape as a weapon of war. I mean, it's the sort of thing that you have to rationalize yourself into. You have to subordinate your humanity to it. We saw something very similar from the squad, right? Your, their representatives, they immediately came out and said, we need an immediate ceasefire and de-escalation on the part of Israel in the wake of this, the worst atrocity, the worst genocidal act of violence against Jews from the Holocaust. Ocasio-Cortez, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Corey Bush, Jamal Bowman, Ilan Omar— talking about the, you know, the need to avoid senseless violence. Well, what we're about to see from Israel is hardly senseless violence. It's quite purposeful violence, in fact. It has an objective, a strategic objective, an achievable objective. It is justified by any conception of the laws of war throughout human history. And only if you have marinated in what passes for logic in academia among academicians Um, can you convince yourself that this kind of brutality is justified by some historical grievance or another? Um, It's an exercise in rationalization. It's it's obviously obnoxious, but it is endemic. It is everywhere. It's the sort of thing that I think has seeped its way from the campuses into American businesses, into boardrooms, certainly into government. And it's a moral atrocity. People should be shamed and called out for it. But we've spent years incubating this into this kind of um, inhumane theory of uh, social organization in the Middle East in particular, but it involves America too. Uh, and we, we call it sophistication. We reward it with high positions and status and money. And it has to end. It can't go on like this. It is a self-defeating, suicidal ideology uh, that regards us as the biggest problem in the world and, the, and um, Israeli Jews by proxy. Uh, it, has, it takes dead aim at the United States. It wants to see this country fail. 
It is an enemy. It needs to be regarded as such. The people who succumb to this ideology do not. They're victims. But the ideology itself is an enemy of the United States, and it must be treated that way. So, Charlie, how do you think about uh, where's the line between, obviously, you can legitimately oppose Israel's policies in all sorts of respects and and intense ways and harsh terms. But what's what's the line between that and anti-Semitism? Well, before I get to that, I want to convey something that Noah and I were talking about this morning before the podcast, and that is that in the world in which the four of us work, these questions are often sliced and diced into left and right and colonialist and anti-colonialist and ideologue and non-ideologue and all these terms. But in the real world, I think this is the sort of question that divides people between being normal and being freaks. I think that if you don't look at the details here, at the nature of the attack, of the tactics used, at the rapes and beheadings of babies and setting Jewish people on fire and say, this is wrong. I am against it. And I side with the people who didn't do it. Then there is something wrong with you. You have seceded from normal human reaction. And I thought this after 9-11, when it had never occurred to me that the question of whether or not the United States was the good guy, whether or not one should grieve for New York and Washington and Shanksville, Pennsylvania, would be deemed political. A few days after 9-11 happened, I heard Mary Beard, who's a classicist at Cambridge University, which is near where I grew up, she's a very intelligent woman and a good classicist in her field, say on the radio that America had it coming. And it wasn't that I thought that's wrong, although I of course do, it's that I was astonished by the sheer weirdness of that reaction. Yeah, classic case of something only an intellectual can say, I believe. And I think that that is the case here as well. If you see what has happened here and you try to filter it, through the intellectual or ideological framework that you have built for yourself, the abstract structure through which you conceive the world, then you're an oddball. And you don't behave or think or react or feel in the way normal human beings do. I've been in two countries since this has happened, and I've heard precisely no one, no one, irrespective of their political views, outside of academia and journalism, say anything other than that this is an atrocity, which it is. Now, the question of what constitutes anti-Semitism can get difficult in that it tracks in some way on the question of whether or not people who are skeptical of our aiding Ukraine are thereby pro-Putin. Some of them are, and some of them aren't. And, you know, I've been vocal in my defense of people 
who have shied away from some of the most bellicose statements. Because I think that there are genuinely people out there who have complicated views on foreign policy or they're non-interventionists or they're worried about nuclear war or what you will. And I don't think that makes them pro-Putin or apologists for fascism or what you will. And in the same vein, I think there are people who genuinely are concerned whether it's on geopolitical or human rights grounds about the living conditions in Gaza or what you will, and they don't hate Jews. But it's also the case, isn't it, that an awful lot of the people who are keen to say that they're not anti-Semitic, they're anti-Zionist, or to build up those abstract arguments, have pretty terrible views when it actually comes to extraordinary numbers of Jewish people in Israel being wantonly murdered. And that Venn diagram <laughs> is fairly strongly overlapping right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that the sorts of people, for example, who signed the Harvard letters that you referred to need to go and look in the mirror, need to look at themselves, need to ask themselves, have they abstracted this out to such a degree that they can't see what has happened here, that they can't see which side has been killing babies and setting people on fire and raping women and then breaking their bones, and which side has not. Because although I have some tolerance for those who have truly nuanced views about geopolitics, there does come a point practically which you have to decide which side you're on. And I'm on the side of the people who didn't do this. Yeah, it's it's a weird coincidence that there's there's one nation in the entire roll call of the United Nations that supposedly doesn't deserve to exist, according to these people. One people that doesn't deserve their, their homeland, and it just happens to be, <laughs> it just right. happens to be the Jews who are portrayed as the, these awful colonizers when they're really the indigenous people, right? I mean, they, they, they were there for thousands of years since since Abraham. And, and the idea that they're interlopers or they're, you know, uh, colonizers sent from Russia to create an outpost of Russia. No, they're, they're escaping Russia but, and going to their homeland to protect themselves. Yeah. And Rich, can I say just one more thing yeah. on that? I read your piece on this, and I agree with you on this. And it matters factually that Israel is the homeland. But assume for the sake of argument that it's not, because if you look at human history, it's full of people mm -hmm. conquering other lands mm -hmm. and yeah. then they take over, different regimes come and go. And you know, then hundreds and hundreds of years pass. And I just think that the whole concept of decolonization is bunk. Yeah, And I think that the people who are currently tweeting, what did you think decolonization would look like? needs to hang their heads in shame. I mean, even if you accept it as the premise, and I agree that it doesn't apply here, but even if you accept it as the premise, People X took over People Y's land 500 years ago, and People Y is still pissed about it, you cannot fly in to a music festival right. and massacre people. The yeah. answer to that just has to be, no, it's not an excuse. You can't use it as an incantation. Well, of course, imperialism, colonization. No, no, I'm sorry. We don't behave like this in the Western world, and the people who do behave like this need to pay a price if for it. If this is yeah, what no, decolonization absolutely. looks like, 
we should all right. agree that decolonization yeah. <laughs> is an enemy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so Jim Garrity, another really irksome to understate it uh, aspect of this debate is the insistence on the part of certain people and certain news organizations to call these Hamas terrorists militants, right? Maybe you're, you're militant if you're, you know, an ideological extremist, or you can be militant really in in uh, um, in supporting, you know, a righteous cause. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you show up to um, a music festival, shoot people in cold blood, rape them, kidnap them, uh, parade them in the most hideous manner possible, you are a terrorist. You're, you're not a militant. The militant is no longer an accurate uh, descriptor. It leaves out all the the important stuff, which is that you're a terrorist. But the the uh, parts of the news media are just beholden to this political correctness, ultimately, you know, anti-Israel uh, political correctness that you can't call its enemies terrorists for whatever reason. I guess because Israel insists on calling them terrorists, but that's that's what they are. Yeah, I was going to say militants do not behead babies. That that really doesn't seem like a, an outrageous statement. That really doesn't seem like it's a, a high bar to clear. For the overwhelming majority of human beings, even going back to the Stone Age and our, you know, the brutal uh, eras of the past, uh, Rich, when you began this segment, you mentioned that this was not the most important story of the week, and it's not. But it's it's if it's not one, it's two or three. It's not that far. I think how the West responds to this is a very big deal, because while the West is not responsible for what Hamas has chosen to do. A lot of actions by the West have inadvertently, I'm going to be generous and say that, enabled Hamas. The way we treat Iran has consequences for what Hamas, what Hamas can and cannot do. Um, and the fact that, you know, within, uh, you know, this occurred in the, you know, Saturday morning hours. Um, and by Saturday afternoon, the Democratic Socialists of America were announcing we're holding rallies in the downtowns of all these cities across America. Right. They, they, they felt, they saw this, they heard about this, and their first thought was, now is our time to stand in solidarity. Now, they'd, they would say with the, with the Palestinians, not with Hamas, but boy, they never got around to, to denouncing Hamas. Really wasn't too much to ask. And the thing is, like, you know, I'm trying to imagine, like, you know, if, um, if, when, when, pro, when some pro-life nut decides to try to bomb an abortion clinic, you see a whole bunch of pro-lifers saying, "That's not the, this ain't it, chief. This is not the way you're supposed to do these things. You cannot be pro-life and go around killing people. It's right there in the name. Right? That's, you know, that if someone acts in the name of a cause you believe in and does something terribly wrong, kills innocent people, like you're morally obligated to come forward and say, no, that's not us. That's not what we stand for. You have dishonored our cause. You have, you have dis, you know, smeared the good name of our cause. You have ruined our cause. You've ruined our, what we're trying to do here. By trying to, I didn't hear a lot of that from a lot of Palestinian activists over the last couple of days. Maybe I missed some, but really few and far between. I think there was somebody on an essay on Substack, I forget who's, pardon me for forgetting the name, but the title was, you don't have to endorse gang rape. That's the moral line we're looking for here. That's mm-hmm. our expectation. Really, it's too much to ask, huh? You couldn't do that? You point out the squad, right? You know, a uh, whole bunch of them had you know, denounced Israel in their statements. A whole bunch of them didn't even mention Hamas. They mentioned they denounced violence, abstract, like it's a thing that happened, like it was a car crash. No, they strafed kids running away where they moments earlier celebrating at a, a music festival. It was straight up massacre. None of those kids were, were any threat to anybody. Certainly not the babies. Certainly not the four year old twins. Certainly not the six year olds. 
Those people put their bodies in front of those babies. I like it. It, it is so infuriating. And I used to, you used to be able to say, ah, you know, the squad or, you know, like, or ah, college students are always crazy. No, now it's something really dark and malevolent. And when you see, as you said, you know, a crowd outside of, was it the Sydney Opera House chanting, gas the Jews? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, how, how could the Holocaust have happened? How could so many people in Germany have gone so mad and been so hate? Well, we're seeing it now. We're seeing a whole bunch of people who look at a massacre, and their first thought is to stand with those who perpetuated the massacre and to denounce the victims. That's so, where we are. So, so no, before we have to move on quickly, what have you made of Joe Biden's reactions so far? So far, we saw a, a statement that was was good. Over the the weekend, you hope he sticks with it, and especially that his State Department was paying attention. But otherwise, a, a lot of lids, uh, you know, as as uh, we, we are accustomed to with this this presidency. And then I'll just add on a, a hypothetical. So let's say Americans were killed in in this attack, and there there is a suggestion that perhaps also Americans are are hostages. If that's the case, what do we do, and where does that take us? Two good questions. Um, on on your second question, I'm pondering that question now, and I think I might write on it later because I don't know the answer. That's a very volatile situation. Hamas has promised to execute on camera individually its hostages once the ground invasion begins. In 2014, the United States got out of Iraq, and everybody wanted to be out of Iraq. It was a painful thing to do, but the right thing to do in the minds of the public. And then two Americans had their heads cut off on camera by ISIS. And public opinion changed overnight. And we had to go back into Iraq, and we are there today. And probably will be for a very long time. What happens if we see an American begging for his or her life only to be shot in the head on camera? I don't know. But I think something very serious would follow that. God forbid, more than one. Um, so I'm going to be thinking about that later. As for the Biden administration's response to this event, I've been reserving judgment. Uh, it's desirable to see the movement of at least one carrier with remarkable alacrity, with all the power their nuclear engines can muster to get right off the coast of the Levant and present a, 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 uni, you know, a, a unified front against what Israel is facing. It may be desirable to use that later. And I've been heartened to see the diplomatic response, as we said, with this other uh, letter. But the lid had nothing to do with Joe Biden apparently being aged and infirmed. He was being deposed, right? Interviewed by the special counsel who's investigating this president for violating uh, the Presidential Records Act or rather the uh, Freedom of Information Act, or whatever he's accused of violating with these records. At first, when you said he was, he was being deposed, maybe some of our Q listeners <laughs> probably got, got excited there for a second. It's, it's, that kind of, it's that kind of, yeah, we're not talking about the, it's a medieval podcast, right? So we're not talking about that kind of deposition. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, he's locked up. I mean, he's got his own problems that are preventing him from executing uh, to the degree that he needs to in events of crisis like these, the duties of the presidency, of the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. He's got his own problems to deal with, and it is a suboptimal situation from our perspective, to say the very least. Charlie Cook, next question to you. In the medium term, 
events here, the attack, the Israeli ongoing retaliation will create more sympathy for Israel among Western publics, less sympathy, or stay about the same, medium term? In the medium term, we're going to see more sympathy, and that sympathy will be deserved. The question in the long term is whether this has any effect on the archipelago of crazy people who have taken over our institutions, institutions such as Harvard. I saw Larry Summers yesterday calling Harvard out, saying he's never felt so alienated from it. Well, will it change? Will we start to see more normal, well-adjusted people in our institutions? If we do, in the long run, that will redound to the benefit of democracies such as Israel. If we don't, then we'll see a medium-term increase and then a reversion to the mean. Jim? I'm feeling pretty pessimistic this morning. Um, I I think it'll be about the same. Uh, I I think if you have not been shocked by what happened this past weekend, if that hasn't gotten you to reevaluate your opinion of Hamas and its uh, intertwining of the Palestinian cause, then nothing will. Um, we saw, was it the European Union? It was some group in Europe that was going to cut off aid to the Palestinian, to the, to the Gaza. And then after a couple hours, they're like, oh, no, never, never mind. A couple members objected. We, we you know. Um, I think within a couple of days, this will turn into a story of the big, mean, bad Israelis and how they're slaughtering innocent people in Gaza. And how really, now it's like, you know, one massacre, another massacre. Who's to say who's the good guys are? Who's to say who the bad guys are? And uh, the the unpleasant status quo will return. Noah? I think it's a mugged by reality moment for a lot of people. And uh, I think the stink that will be on quite a lot of this <clears throat> very uh, abstracting, hyper-academic left wing that punches above its weight and speaks above the din um, will be so so noxious that a lot of their erstwhile allies will, at least in the short term, keep their distance. I'm afraid that I agree with Jim. I kind of saw this happening in in real time. I was watching CNN yesterday morning, which which had some great coverage. That that woman, Melissa Ward, is that her name? You know, who's always in the yep. the midst of everything. She she had some great reporting. This guy Nick Nick Robertson from the Clarissa uh, Ward. Clarissa Ward. Yeah, sorry. And the uh, Nick Robertson was a- outside of where the, uh, the musical f- music festival was, going from ca- shot up car to shot up car, abandoned on the side of the road. I mean, it was it was really good stuff. And the um, the folks at the anchor desk, you know, were it, there, there was kind of a, a pro Israel feeling about the whole thing, right? Because because they are th- these people are human beings. <laughs> um, but then they got their their video from a, a refugee camp in Gaza that was hit. Uh, I, I imagine totally justifiably there is a legitimate target there by an Israeli bomb, you know, and they're screaming. There's, you know, I didn't watch too carefully because I'm squeamish about these sort of things. I'm sure blood, just a terrible scene. And we're going to see more of that. It's just inherent to uh, the nature of warfare. And I think Jim Jim is right as the, the horror of what happened in Israel fades is that's less on the TV screen because it's no longer news. Then the news is just these bombs hitting in Gaza and there'll, there'll be truly heartrending stories out of 
Gaza. Again, doesn't mean that the the just the operation isn't totally justified. It is, and I, I wish it success. But that's just the reality of what's going to happen. So I'm afraid I'm with Jim, and it's going to uh, swing swing the other way and and end up being a wash. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Bethlehem College. Bethlehem College is where students study the great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the Great Commission. Trajectories of life are being set for young men and women in the pivotal period between the ages of 18 and 25. At Bethlehem College, students wrestle with these realities, not in a 200-person classroom, but in a 200-person college. Bethlehem College is not a Bible college, but everything in the academic program is saturated with the Bible. The school's chancellor, John Piper, said recently that when he looked at the upcoming generation of students, he observed that their God is too small and their reading is too passive. So Bethlehem's aims are to train students in assiduous attentiveness in all their reading, whether reading their Bible or whether they're reading the world. Bethlehem calls this approach, quote, education in serious joy and delivers it at a price that ranks as one of the lowest tuition rates in American Christian higher education, only about $7,500 a year. Bethlehem College, education in serious joy. To apply or request more information, visit bcsmn.edu slash editors. Let me repeat that one, bcsmn.edu slash editors. Please check it out. So, Charlie, it's happening. RFK Jr. is running as an independent, leaving the Democratic Party this doesn't shock me, given uh, he's he's been making the rounds at events that uh, yeah, typical Democrats don't show up at Freedom Fest. Uh, Jim and I were were down there in Memphis, and RFK was a pretty big presence. So, how will this affect the presidential race, if at all? Well, it's going to be somewhat amusing to watch some of the people who have built RFK up over the last few months try to tear him down now that he is a threat to Donald Trump or perhaps to whoever ends up as the Republican nominee. Conservatives really do need to stop being such cheap dates. I've never understood the affection for RFK Jr. in the first place. The guy's a kook and he is in no way a conservative. But he has been celebrated. I believe he's speaking at CPAC. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Well... Good luck, guys. You created him, and he is now a great deal more popular in the Republican Party than he is in the Democratic Party, which speaks ill of the Republican Party. If he ends up taking more votes away from the Republican, that will not have happened entirely by accident. That will have happened in part by design. I'm not sure whether that will happen. I've actually read interesting takes on this from cephologists in both directions there are a good number of people out there who seem only to vote when somebody who dislikes the establishment and is a bit odd comes along in 2016 that benefited donald trump whether it will in 2024 i'm not so sure certainly though if you were a Republican and you were willing to vote for whomever the Republican candidate is, you would wish that RFK Jr. were not in the race because he is a confounding variable 
mm-hmm. that could well cause chaos and upend the politics of a number of issues that might be important in 2024, one of which is COVID and the vaccine and any attempts to make sure that next time we have a pandemic, which will hopefully be a long time in the future, we don't do what we did last time. So, Jim, it was notable, my my Twitter feed, all these Republican and right-wing accounts, all of a sudden, last couple of days, full of all this attack information on RFK. Could you believe he supported Hillary Clinton in 2016? <laughs> can, can you imagine this guy is a liberal Democrat in almost everything he says, except for his uh, attacks on, on the establishment? Well, months and months ago, I said Robert F. Kennedy, if he really wanted to have an impact on the race, should run as an independent, not in the Democratic primary. And a whole bunch of Robert F. Kennedy fans said that, Jim, that's the dumbest idea ever. What the hell's wrong with you? You don't know anything. Well, lo and behold, now he's following this path. The reason I said that, by the way, I think Robert F. Kennedy is a nut and doesn't belong anywhere near the Oval Office. Um, I also think, by the way, he should get Secret Service protection because as much as I think he's a nut, I don't want him to die. That seems like a really minimal uh, standard to meet. But some people vehemently disagreed, saying that he wasn't worth the expense. Um, But as for Robert F. Kennedy, like... He was interesting to conservatives as a potential, or or should I say, he was interesting to people on the right if he was a potential complication for Biden, you know, rewinning the nomination and, uh, you know, incumbent presidents always prefer not to have a primary challenge. And he was getting, you know, Kennedy was getting a certain number of votes as a place for people to kind of park their votes to say, I'm not happy with Biden. But he's leveled out around 15%, both nationally and in the early primary states. And that's just not going to get you much attention anymore. That's just not that interesting. That's just not surprising or exciting. And so my argument was, if you want to be a player in this race, all the way down to election day, you should be an independent because there's just no home for you in the Democratic Party. And for a long time, Kennedy was saying, look, I'm a Kennedy. I've always been a Democrat. I'm always going to be a Democrat. And it was, but he also would say, like, the party had been taken over by neocon warmongers and the big corporate interests and moneyed bankers and, and all that stuff. And I'd point out that, like, if you feel like the party has been taken over by everybody you hate and very few people in the party seem to have any trouble with it, then that's, that's not your party anymore, right? You, you, you've effectively left the party or the party moved to a different direction. And even if you still feel like you've stayed the same, uh, a whole bunch of us who are conservatives know that feeling. And so, you know, there, there wasn't any room for Kennedy in the Democratic Party. He had made his pitch and, you know, 85% of Democrats weren't interested. So you want to get in, you can be in the general, you can be in the general election, you run as an independent, ballot access is going to be a headache, we'll see how far it goes. But I also point out this idea that Kennedy is going to be some major headache for Trump, I'm not convinced. You know, MBD had made the very good point that if, if vaccines and vaccine mandates are your single most important issue then maybe you're more interested in voting for Robert F. Kennedy than you are for Donald Trump. But I can't imagine that being more than a, a percentage point, two, three, four percentage points. Um, and I think that, you know, the Democrats who were most attracted to Kennedy were already pretty disaffected and, and you know, uh, un, unimpressed with the Democratic Party as a whole. So they had one foot out the door, I think. Uh, but the Trump fans aren't going to abandon their man. And I think, you know, Steve Bannon singing the praises of Robert, RFK Jr., I think those days are over. I'd be surprised if Tucker Carlson remains as enthusiastic a supporter of RFK 
than as he has been so far. Like the moment he becomes any potential headache for Trump, all of this sympathetic cheerleading you've seen on the right is going to disappear just like that. Noah. I think it, it does present a threat to Donald Trump's theory of the 2024 race if he ends up being the nominee. <clears throat> RFK Jr. appeals to a very particular sort of voter, low propensity voters. So Donald Trump has to win back people he lost, right? And it's very hard sociologically. It's very difficult to get somebody who's voted against you to later on vote for you. Um, but he needs that from the existing electorate. Another theory of the race is that he can pull a 2016 and remake the electorate by being this outsider, this wily type. But if you sat out the last two elections, or perhaps just the last one, um, and you're just unenthused by the political class, and you share RFK Jr.'s prescriptions and, most importantly, disposition, he's a paranoiac. He's a conspiracy theorist. He violates Heinlein's uh, basic law, which is that he assigns to malice that which is otherwise attributable to stupidity or just entropy. Um, if you're that type of guy and you are attracted to RFK, then you'd be more attracted to him than you would Donald Trump. Donald Trump is now a product of the machine. He is the establishment Republican. Um, to Charlie's point that, yes, Republicans, anytime a celebrity of any sort gives a wink to Republicans, they just swoon all over themselves from Ted Nugent to Trump and so on. They are cheap dates in that sense. But the rally around the, the Trump effect and the, you know, the effort to diminish RFK's profile is going to be successful only among Republican voters, registered Republican voters, and people who have previously voted for Donald Trump, um, and independents who are leaning Republican. If you're trying to remake the electorate again and try to win back states that you lost by changing you know, the nature of the, of the demographics that vote, I think he stands in the way of that. So, Jim Garrity, I a question to you. I have crunched the numbers very carefully. I have conferred with all the best odds makers around the world, and I am putting the RFK vote share, the over-under for the RFK vote share in 2024 at 1.8%. Are you under or over? That's nationally, right? Yes, sir. Okay. I will take the over. We can go, let's go. No, let's go state by state. <laughs> uh, okay, no, but my point being, like, I, I, you know, like, let's say, first of all, like, even one point eight percent might be enough to tip the scales of the who wins, uh, mm -hmm. conceivably. So, like, the difference between is it going to be large or is it going to be consequential are two very different questions. Um, I'm going to go on the the over, but not by much. One point nine, two percent, something like that. No, I think I think I would take the under just because. It's, it's impossible to game out at this point, but if we end up getting a Joe Biden-Donald Trump rematch, I think there will be other candidates who will enter the race and will will carve up the, the electorate in even more ways, and RFK Jr.'s appeal um, will be rather limited. Charlie? I will say that is a really good spread. Hmm. As somebody who follows spreads very closely in sports and is amazed at how close the odds makers tend to be, I think that's a really tough one. I'm going to go for the over two, though, although I'm with Jim. I don't think by much. I'm going to go under. With that, let me mention a couple things going on at NR. 
as we speak, the first monthly edition is going to press. In fact, if you listen to this podcast, we're recording late Tuesday morning here. If you listen, say, Wednesday afternoon, it actually may have gone to press. So an epic event is happening as we speak. And for print subscribers, this thing is going to be winging your way uh, through the U.S. mails um, very, very soon here. And we think you're going to love it. Also, digitally, we are going to have a weekly edition of the week, the beloved front section of the magazine with short, punchy, witty items about the news events uh, in the, uh, the last fortnight it's been in the print magazine for decades and decades now, but we're actually going to do it uh, weekly, as the title of the section has uh, misleadingly suggested for a very long time, and that will be in your e email box if you're interested in getting it. And as always, if you value our content, if you value what you hear here, you value what you read at NR, please, we need you to subscribe. It's not a huge expense. It's a very small expense in the scheme of things, but it's very important to what we do that people just pay a little bit for what they read at National Review. So if you're not already a member of NR+, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member. With that, let's hit a few other things. Before we go, Noah, I mean, this is scary stuff, but you you are in the process of constructing. It just, it brings chills, chill, chills for me to, just to say it, a spooky trail. Ooh, that's right. And that's exactly what it is. Um, listeners uh, may remember that uh, I have been uh, dealing with a piece of land that a, uh, my neighbor came down with his front end loader and cleared out. It was all this thicket and brush, and now it's all cleared out. And it's basically a long trail by a, a, a wild apple tree in my property. And I've been, you know, trying to shape it up, and we have some stones put in, so it's now this, like, stony path through the wilderness. And we also have a Halloween party, uh, so maybe, like, 50 kids in the neighborhood come down. Sound like a lot, but they're all at, out in the garage, so the damage they can do is limited. So I'm going to transform you, you, it. You host it. You host a lot of kids on a lot of we, occasions. We do, seems. but we were talking about this. There's only just like a it's narrow never just window like, for this. It's never just like five kids coming over. Well, so it's like 50 or 100. <laughs> the neighborhood is huge. And, they all, and they're all living in the same area and they all kind of get together. But we try to keep corral them outside. So the damage they can do to physical structures is very limited. <laughs> but yeah, so we're going to transform it into a spooky trail. I'm going to uh, get some tiki torches and a smoke machine and hang some ghosts and, try to, and really do it up. Um, I never liked Halloween growing up. This was not my holiday. But having children has changed me into uh, a Halloween fan. And also my wife is very into it. I think that plays a big part. Yeah, Halloween has just become big. It's much bigger than when, when I was a, a kid. So, Jim Garrity, speaking of kids, you saw your nephew. Yeah, look, let's face it, you know, the news has been depressing as all hell the last couple of days. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen my nephew. He's now getting up to almost a year. Well, okay, let's say he's like nine months or so. So he's got a personality, full head of hair, much more interactive than uh, when he was an infant. And it was just what my soul needed. And uh, both my... Both my teenagers got to be there and spend some more quality time. And it's going to be a very interesting age gap between them. Uh, my guys are going to be uh, well into adulthood as my nephew grows up. But you know, I, I continue to hold up to this uh, all-important standard that as an uncle, your job is to spoil the child, always bring presents, particularly drums, loud toys. Every toys will drive my brother and sister-in-law crazy. 
And uh, anyway, just what the world needed. And you know, if you're if you're feeling down, find some, spend some time around a baby. Correction: spend some time around somebody else's baby, and it will out of all, always lift your spirits. So, Charlie, you went to the Jaguar game, but not the Jaguar game in Jacksonville or even in the, in Indianapolis. Or in Buffalo, which was their opponent. This was a Jacksonville Jaguars game in London. And the Jaguars won. They won 25 to 20. The fourth quarter was extraordinarily excited. I took my dad, who's 75, and he'd never seen an NFL game, let alone in person. And if you want to know how that went, then you can read the brand spanking new edition of National Review, which I believe is the first one that's been redesigned. So is it um, is it intuitive for the, the foreigner or, or no? I'd expect no, but... No. Yeah. Well, I gave him a crash course when we were on the train on the way with a piece of paper and a pen. And then while the game was going <laughs> yeah, on... Yeah, the a- to... X's and O's. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then while the game was going here's, here's on... Here's the pistol uh, formation, Dad. <laughs> I didn't get into under-center pistol and shotgun. I thought that might be a bit much. But I did get into the basic rules. And then while the game was going on, I supplemented my lesson with explanations. But by the second half, he pretty much grasped what was going on. The only point at which he asked questions was, you know, what, why is there a flag on the field? Which mm-hmm. often the, the answer is, question. I don't know. Yeah. 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 The referees question. don't know well, either. Why is that a holding yeah. call? I, said, <laughs> right. I don't know. Well, because, because the Chiefs <laughs> might lose the game. That's why they yeah. didn't. <laughs> why, why was that pass interference? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't have much. Uh, I, I love following these various baseball accounts and baseball history accounts on Twitter. And one came up the other day, just total, totally random. But here's Tony Gwynn going five for five in, in this game. And I, I watched this whole, you know, two-minute two video. And man, that guy was such a magician. The bat was like a wand, you know. One hit was, you know, a soft line drive that he, he just plunked the opposite way. And the other was a, a home run. He, he pulled into the, the the right center seats. And, and you'll see these stats uh, coming up also on Twitter, you know, whoever it is, Joey Gallo just struck out more in, th- in three weeks than Tony Gwynn did in three seasons or something. He's just such an incredible hitter and a joy to watch. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, first, I just want to kind of pause and say that, like, the, the horrific events over in Israel broke Saturday morning. And by Saturday evening or early Sunday morning, we had like, you know, not just one or two, but like three or four really smart, cogent, straight from the heart pieces uh, from several of our contributors. And I just, you know, like, you know, it, it's hard enough to write a really good essay. I didn't have to write about anything until the morning jolt on Monday morning. Um, to, but to write something, to do it fast is, is really something. So I'm, I'm blessed to be amongst some really good uh, colleagues here. Out, out of the many contributions, one that really grabbed me and articulated something that had been floating around in the back of my mind was, Noah, uh, your piece, It's Time to Sober Up. Look, I enjoy political humor, not just as much as the next man. I think it's you know, probably what got me into politics. I love laughing. I love the silly stuff. I love, we laugh on this podcast. But our politics has become more and more of a reality show. And it looks like we're coming down between a Former president, uh, twice impeached under four indictments, and former host of a reality show against a soon-to-be 81-year-old geriatric who, as of this recording, has appeared for you know three minutes in public in the first 72 hours after this crisis. 
that's not going to cut it. We, this is not a show. The politics is not there to entertain you. Politics is not there to put on a show for you. This is life and death stuff. And I think Noah articulated that really well. I don't think that message is going to be heeded, but probably more than anything else, I wish my country would, would heed that message, Noah. Thank you. Noah, what's your pick? Uh, I'm going to um, direct readers to the great Andrew McCarthy's latest. The $6 billion is only a small part of Biden's support for jihadist Iran. Even if you think that the $6 billion uh, and the release of it to Qatari custody, which was hours later followed by this attack, even if you think that's a tenuous link, and it's hard to imagine this attack happening in the absence of that, um, those funds, those very fungible funds, Andy details the monetary support and political cover that the Biden administration has provided to Iran and its terrorist proxies operating under the delusion that there could be something like a second JCPOA, and it is all prelude to the events that occurred this weekend in Israel. Try. Well, I was going to pick both of those, and I will echo the praise of Noah's column. If this doesn't wake our primary electorate, I don't know what will. But instead, I will take Andy McCarthy, who has written, Hamas operatives are not militants, they are jihadists. I think it's important to call things what they are. The idea that this is a normal geopolitical dispute over, say, water rights or international trade rules is absurd. On the one side, you have people who want to live, and on the other, you have people who want to kill those people and die in the process. So Jim more or less preempted me. I wanted to pick all of Noah's work the last couple of days. This is a moment that calls for uh, moral seriousness and moral clarity, and Noah has provided it in buckets. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast, and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Maiden and Bethlehem College. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.